City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. Something strange happened in Russia this week. Something very strange happened in Russia this week. Uh, Shattering everyone's expectations, the Japanese national soccer team jumped out to a 2-0 lead against the heavily heavily favored Belgian team. No one expected this to happen. Uh, The Japanese national team was not in the top 50 countries, and yet somehow they made it out of the knockout round of the World Cup based on an obscure rule about yellow cards. I mean, this was an unfathomable thing. And not only did they find themselves here in the knockout round, but then they find themselves winning. Two to nothing against a team that's one of the favorites to win the entire thing. Were they going to pull this Cinderella upset? Was this going to be their moment? It was not. In the second half, They blew a 2-0 lead in extra time, the very end of the soccer game. They kicked a goal, the Belgians kicked a goal, went ahead 3-2, and the Japanese team's Cinderella story was over. It was done. But what comes next is the weirder thing. It's not weird that Japan almost beat this great team. It's not weird that they were even there. What the weird thing that happened was, was after the Japanese team lost, and they went back to their locker room, and they got their stuff and left, the Russian officials went into this locker room, and they saw something incredibly strange, where you would expect jerseys sort of torn off and and thrown around, the the excesses of people taking out their frustrations on this locker room, where you would expect them to have at least tore the locker room a little bit up after this anguishing loss. No, in fact, the locker room was cleaned perfectly. The Japanese team, after they lost this World Cup game, took the time to immaculately clean this locker room that they were visiting in Russia. That's weird. That's not normal. Whether you're a fan of sports or not, for a losing team to leave their locker room immaculate with the the garbage cans tied up so that all the janitors had to do was pick them up, everything was Spotless. It was probably cleaner than when they got there. For the losing team to treat the locker room like this is weird. And it was noted by the Russians and by the media outlets who found out about it, who rushed in to take pictures of this locker room. And you look, you look at these pictures, they, they look like this locker room had just been built, like it had never been used. And this losing team did this. Why is that so strange? Why is that so noteworthy? I think it's because it was an action that that couldn't be paid back. There was no sort of reason for it. Why, why would you clean up a locker room in a country that's not... Why would you do this? It's not like Russia's going to pay you back. It's not like when Russia comes to the World Cup in your country, which is not scheduled at all, 
that they're going to return the favor. They can't repay it. Why did they do it? Why is it so strange? It's because we have no concept for loving others who can't pay us back. You and I, we don't have a concept for giving someone undeserved love, especially undeserved love that they can't pay back. And when the Japanese team showed a slight picture of that, we sort of scratch our heads and go, huh? The Russians didn't deserve that love. The Russians could never pay back that sort of respect. See, why this strikes us is so strange, why this was so newsworthy and noteworthy, is that we typically reserve our love and service for those who can pay us back. This is not just true of us, this has been true of humans throughout time. We typically reserve our love for those who can pay us back. What I want to do this morning is read a story from David's life. And I think it's going to shed some light on the way that you and I love other people. David is now securely king of Israel. He has united the northern and southern tribes. He is ruling from his house, his palace in Jerusalem. He has made a covenant with God. And now things are going to get a little bit different. Things are going to go in an unexpected way. So if you would, stand with me, and we're going to read 2 Samuel 9. I'll read it out loud. You follow along. If you've got a Bible or an app, if not, uh, if you look on the screen here, you'll see it. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he at? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amael, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, of the son of Amiel at Lodabir. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid him homage, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. 
like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. This story, just like the story of the Japanese national team cleaning their locker, strikes our ears as strange. Not just because I had to say the words Mephibosheth on several occasions and even once had to say it in the plural. This story strikes us as strange because we don't show sacrificial love to other people. And not only do we not show sacrificial love to other people, when we do, we only show it to those who we find to be desirable or who can pay us back. And that's the opposite of what David did, isn't it? You see, David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was crippled. He couldn't pay it back. Mephibosheth was not desirable. He was not the bell of the ball. And as we read this, the first thing that sort of jumps out at us is our deficiency in this. Think about it. Think with me just a second about the ways that we don't show sacrificial love to others. You know, it's very easy for us to ignore those who are in need. Right? Especially those of us who live here in downtown, we have grown accustomed to the don't make eye contact rule. If I don't make eye contact with somebody who's trying to get something with me, maybe they'll think I don't exist. We all of a sudden, when people are needy around us, we turn into toddlers and think, if I don't look at them, they won't see me. Right? This is toddler logic, and yet it's the way that we often treat others around us. Or What's more likely the case is we build our lives in a way that we don't ever see people in need. That we are quick to decide, oh, no, I'm not going to take Fifth Avenue North. That goes too close to St. Vinny's. I'll, I'll go up to Ninth Avenue and my drive will be much more peaceful. And so what we do is we build our lives around not even seeing people that will need our love. When all of a sudden a friend of ours becomes emotionally needy, we become quick to screen those phone calls, don't we? We don't show love, and when we do, we only show it to certain types of people. It was interesting, there was a city council meeting just this last week here in St. Petersburg, and there's a a new nine-story building being built uh, just north of the hospital complex um, on the south side. And this new complex that's being built, it's nine stories, a third, it's a public-private partnership, and a third of the units are going to be given to and run by uh, the Bowley Center, B-O-L-E-Y. For those of you who don't know, this is the folks here in St. Petersburg who deal with uh, those who are struggling with mental illness and those whose mental illness has rendered them typically unable to 
to have a house or have a place to live on their own. And so the Bowley Center steps in and it helps them, it provides them training, it provides them the resources they need to have a stable place to live. Well, when the neighbors in South Downtown found out that this new nine-story condo was going up that was going to be one-third filled with folks from the Bowley Center, they showed up in mass at the city council meeting, and they showed a great example of NIMBYism. NIMBYism comes from the acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard. Right? When all of a the sudden they want to put a center like the Bowley Center in your neighborhood, all of a sudden these very sort of affluent um, people who would be very much for caring for the poor, very much all about helping those who have mental illness, all of a sudden when the helping those with mental illness happens across the street from your house, your response becomes different. No, 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 no. Put that in somebody else's neighborhood. You, you want to see this? Go to any neighborhood association meeting around town and hear a developer say, we're going to build Section 8 housing in your neighborhood. What does everybody do? No, 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 no. Not in my neighborhood. Why? Because we don't want to show love for those who are different than us. We don't want to show love for those in need. We want that to happen elsewhere. I'll show them love in somebody else's neighborhood, not in my backyard. And when we do show love, when we do show concern and care for others, it's those who are desirable. It's those who can advance us. It's the CEO at the gym that it's good to rub shoulders with because you want to talk about connections, that guy's got them. It's when the politician comes to visit, we all of a sudden want to get to know and shake their hand because that guy, that woman, she knows people. And if I ever need a favor done, I know who to call. And we always look for people who we want to be seen with. Look, I'm guilty of this too. Um, uh, a few months ago, we had a visitor here at City Church. Um, somebody found out that her husband um, played for a baseball team across the street. And you want to believe that I forgot that girl's name when she came up for communion? No. No, I did not. Why? Why? Because my gut reaction, my basic instinct is to love those who I think can advance my position. to have a baseball player's wife in this church. I like the idea of that. That makes me feel better. That's a great story to tell to my church planting buddies. That's really cool. That's really selfish. Because it is not sacrificial love at all. It is actually self-serving love that made me do that. Think about who you choose to spend more time with. When's the last time you chose to spend time with someone who would not advance your social cause? When's the last time you spent time with someone who would hurt your social capital? Who would emotionally drain you? We don't show love, and when we do, we show it to those who are desirable, 
and can pay us back. Think about this. The reason you don't show love to those who can't pay it back is because it's a risk. What happens if that person just goes and spends that money on drugs? I don't want to risk it. You see, all of these things add up. All of these things add up to paint a picture of the way that you and I functionally live. But then this story comes in. And we see King David. And the first thing that this chapter begins with, did you catch it? David goes out looking for somebody that he can show the kindness of God to. He calls his servants in and says, Hey, who, is there anyone left? Is there anyone from Saul's family left? Is there anyone in the kingdom who has Saul's blood? Is there anyone out there that I can show the kindness of God to? Not only does he not close it out, not only does he not say, not in my backyard, he goes out looking for a descendant of Saul. And when he finds this descendant of Saul, he brings him to his house. Now, can you imagine being the grandson of Saul, the rival of David, and you're the only remaining blood relative of Saul who's alive, and you get called to King David's courtroom. You can imagine there is some, some fear and trembling with this. And so Mephibosheth goes, and he meets David, and he finds a very different king than the one that he expects. Because instead of exacting vengeance for all of Saul's crime onto this person, what does David do? David begins to show incredible love. He begins to show steadfast love, covenant faithfulness that we've talked about as over with the story of David. Because Mephibosheth is undesirable. He is a broken man who cannot walk on his own. Not only can he not walk on his own, he cannot provide for himself. This is an agrarian society. If you can't work in your fields, your fields don't get worked on, you don't have bread. And so this is somebody who is completely dependent on others. And he has no means of paying David back. And yet, this is the kind of person that David seeks out, that David looks for, that David tries to find so that he can show him the kindness of God. Not only does he show him this love, but he provides for his future. Did you catch that? He said, I'm going to give you all of Saul's land back. But not only am I going to give you all of Saul's land back, I'm going to take some of Saul's servants who are still around, and I'm going to say that they need to work that land for you. You can't work that land yourself. That's okay. I'm going to financially provide for you and for your family by having this land be worked on. But it's not going to be to provide you food. Because your food is going to come from my table. Think of how risky this is. This is David's enemy. This is Saul's grandson. And David says, come, sit at my table. Come, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure everything is taken care of for you. This is lavish, luxurious love. This is not, yeah, sure, here's a fiver, please don't go spend it on a pint of whiskey. No, this is absolute, over-the-top love and provision that is undeserved 
and unpaybackable. Pretty sure that's not a word, but I think you understand what I'm saying. You know, it's interesting as we read this story, it's kind of short and it's pretty simple. It reminds us, it's ought to remind us of when Jesus told a very similar version of this story. Jesus told it and it went something like this. There once was a man who was going down from Jerusalem and he fell upon robbers and thieves and they beat him and left him dead on the side of the road. And a priest came by and passed by on the other side of the road. And then a Levite happened upon him and passed by on the other side of the road. But then a Samaritan, an enemy, an outsider passed by this man. And he poured oil on his wounds and he bandaged him. And he took him to the inn closest by. And he left money for him and said, This is to provide for this man's wounds and needs. And if there is anything else, put it on my tab. I will come back and pay all of it. You see, the story of Mephibosheth is in so many ways the same story as the Good Samaritan. It is a story of someone who is undesirable and needy, who is shown risky love that he could never pay back. You see, on the one hand, as we read this story, we are called to look at ourselves and go, I don't live like this. I don't live like David. I don't live like the Good Samaritan. But on the other hand, this story is meant to point us to Jesus. Because after all, is not the story of someone giving lavish love to his enemy the story of Jesus and us? See, Romans tells us that while we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for us. That we were those who were undeserving, undesirable. We are those who can never pay back God for His great grace to us. And yet, what does Jesus do? He seeks us out. He comes to find us. He doesn't wait for us to come to Him. He seeks us out. And when He finds us, He gives us a grace that we cannot pay. He gives us forgiveness. He dies for our sins. He bandages our wounds and heals for us. And then He provides for us. He provides the hope of a new life to you and I by giving us the Holy Spirit, the means by which we can change, the means by which we can be healed and renewed. And then Jesus does exactly the same thing that King David does. He invites us to His table. You see, this idea of table is a metaphor that runs throughout the entire Bible. We're reminded of the Passover table where they would eat of the Passover meal. We're reminded of the king's table where David shared with his enemy. We're reminded of the communion table where where Jesus ate with his disciples. And we're reminded of the table of the great feast of Jesus on the last day where we will all sit together, enemies of God, made sons and daughters. Not because we deserved it, not because we can pay it back, but because He sought us out. 
and when you begin to see that you are not David in this story, that you're Mephibosheth, that you are in need and an enemy of God, and then He lavishes His love on you, what happens is that this kind of love is first transformative. I'm reminded of the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? Where Belle's love for Beast is absolutely transformative, both physically and emotionally. When we begin to see the way that Jesus sacrificially loved us, even though we couldn't pay it back, even though we were undesirable, even though we were His enemies, He still loved us and sought us out. When we begin to see how great that is, how deep that is, it is transformational to your heart and mind. But it is only as transformational as we let it be. You see, if I think I need Jesus only a little bit, it will only be a little bit transformational. But if I see myself as deeply needy, if I peer down into my heart and begin to pull back the layers and see how deep my sin goes, that my sin isn't just my actions, it isn't just my motivations, but it is the very desires of my heart. As I dig deep into that and see how deep the rabbit hole goes, I begin to see how great the love and grace of Jesus is because it covers that. And that begins to be transformational. But not only is this sort of love transformational, it's also uncontainable. If you begin to experience this deep love of Jesus, if you begin to understand how great His graciousness is to you, it will spill out into your other relationships. It will spill out into your homes, into our city with risk-taking, self-sacrificial love. Love to the point where it seems strange and it hurts because that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus has shown you. So let's come to His table this morning rejoicing that enemies of God have been made sons and daughters, that we, like Mephibosheth, are given a banquet that we don't deserve. That we, like the Good Samaritan, are provided for in ways we didn't even know we need. That the goodness, the sweetness, and the grace of Jesus transforms us and spills out into the lives of everyone. May God do that in us. Let's pray.